electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm John Fortin. Here's what's ahead. The Bears largely controlling the narrative once again, but will they stay in charge? Morgan Stanley says they have one last act to play, a look at how long that act could be and where you should turn for opportunities. Plus, as more cracks continue to show in the housing market, one real estate investor says there's an area of the market that will hold up better than others. That investor joins us ahead. And speaking of housing, we're going to get the latest read on the builders. Toll Brothers reporting after the bell, plus two more retail names on deck. We will get you set up for all of it in earnings exchange. But we begin with today's markets and Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. Mark, uh, John, the markets are a little fearful of a more hawkish speech from Jay Powell on Friday. But right now, we're holding up on the flat line with the S&P 500, as you can see, down one. Now, you notice the Dow is down a lot more. That's because of some weakness in United Health, UNH, which is down about nine points. That's about 70 points alone in the Dow Jones Industrial. NASDAQ on the flat side. If you take a look at the big movers today, well, it's not good news for the inflation front because energy stocks are really rallying big time here. A lot of this is on this big move up in natural gas we've been seeing in the last few days. But Halliburton, Halliburton Occidental, APA, Schlumberger, all on the upside. Even big material names. Again, this is a commodity place also having a good day. Freeport, Mosaic, CF Industries. These are uh, fertilizers, Mosaic and CF primarily, uh, all moving nice. Big tech, let's just call it uh, either side of positive or negative. Apple, Flattish, Alphabet, NVIDIA is up nicely. That's been up all morning. Micron on the flat side. Uh, what's been weak all day is the more defensive sector. So big pharma is not having a good day. Neither is United Health. Uh, so the overall healthcare sector, a little bit on the downside today. But remember, these are defensive plays. So what's going on here? Well, remember, everyone is afraid that Jay Powell is going to sound a lot more hawkish, but the bottom line is that one of the reasons the market's holding up is the data is supportive of the economic slowdown that all the bulls want and that they want to hear Jay Powell talk about. So look what happened today. New home sales, lowest since January uh, of, uh, of 2016. PMI services, lowest since 2020. PMI manufacturing, the lowest since August of 2020. John, all of this is good news if you are a bull and you want to see data supporting some kind of slowdown, because remember, that will help support the position of Jay Powell, and that is that they're winning slowly the fight against inflation. And of course, they want that economy to slow down a bit. John, back to you. Yeah. Well, are they winning it slowly, quickly enough? That's the question, Bob Hassani. Thank you. (laughs) Sticking with today's bearish tone, uh, Morgan Stanley making a bold call for the rest of the year, saying now's the time for patience and building dry powder. Uh, This bear market, in our view, has one last act, they say. Are they right? If so, where should investors look for opportunities? Joining me now is Kevin Mann, the president and CIO at Hennion and Walsh Asset Management. Uh, Kevin, welcome. So why one last act? I think it's clear right now that the market is very uncertain about what the Federal Reserve is going to do over their last three meetings of 2022. 
if in fact they turn less hawkish, not dovish, John, but less hawkish than many currently believe, I think that provides a tailwind for the stock market. If, however, they raise by 75 basis points in September and perhaps even 50 basis points in November or December, I think that could cause the market to retrench again. Regardless, we are in a decelerating economy right now and investors would be wise to position themselves for slowing economic growth. Okay, so is is um, Jackson Hole mostly about figuring out uh, are the winds blowing more towards 75 or 50 at this point? Is it too soon to tell whether it's 25s after what's next? What, what should we expect the market to react to? It's certainly too soon to predict what's going to happen in November or December. Remember, they don't meet in October, and we also have midterm elections in November. So there's going to be a lot of headlines that could potentially move markets. What I anticipate hearing from Powell on Friday is a more hawkish tone, which is going to lead the markets to believe that they're going to raise by 75 basis points in September. My fear is that they remain as aggressive as they are in the face of a slowing economy that's had two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth. Given all those unknowns, I think some defensive positioning and some opportunistic growth positioning is warranted. Where do you look for that, John? I think the healthcare sector provides both. Okay, why healthcare? Um, There's a a bunch of different areas within that, whether you're talking about what Amazon's moving into or you're talking about biotech. Yes, absolutely. I'm talking about both. So for the opportunistic growth, what we've seen since May of this year is a pickup in M&A activity. These larger cap pharmaceutical companies with excess cash on their balance sheet deploying that and buying some of the innovative healthcare solutions of these smaller cap biotech companies, such as the acquisition by Amgen of Chemocentrics, or even the acquisition by Pfizer of Global Blood Therapeutics announced earlier this month. But if you want the more traditional defensive healthcare planes, look at some of the larger cap pharma names, such as Bristol-Myers Squibb, Merkin Company, or even as mentioned in the earlier segment, United Health Group. We know United Health Group is actually bidding on Signify Health alongside Amazon. So they're certainly confident enough to deploy their cash to try and gain market share. And the pullback we're seeing today could create an attractive entry point, John. So will this M&A, though, create turbulence uh, with the stocks themselves? I mean, if there's M&A, even if it's positive in the medium or longer term, is it going to cause stocks to go down because they're having to make that outlay to buy whatever they're buying? Absolutely. And think about it this way. Large cap pharmaceutical companies continue to have their margins compressed, downward pressure being put on drug prices, and many of their large-scale revenue-producing drugs going off patent now and being subject to generic pricing. Where do they turn to replace that lost revenue, John? We think they're going to have to be acquisitive, and that's to the betterment of those smaller cap pharmaceutical companies who already have drugs in the FDA approval pipeline. Yes, it's a risky place to put money, and that's why you build a diversified portfolio of smaller cap biotech stocks that have the potential to be acquired, but that's for people looking for growth. Those looking to be more defensive, perhaps they stay in some of those larger cap, more traditional pharmaceutical names. All right. Kevin Mon, thank you. My pleasure, John. And from health to bonds, let's see if they're healthy. Two-year notes up for auction. Rick Santelli tracking the action at the CME. Rick? Yes, not a pretty auction. The grade I gave the two-year note auction today, D minus, dog minus. 
Let's go through it. $44 billion two-year notes to kick off $126 billion in supply, twos, fives, and sevens. The yield at the Dutch auction, 3.307%. A bit higher yield than where the, when issued Marcos trading, which was 3.29%. Higher yield, lower price. If you're the seller like the U.S. government, Lower price is never good, and most of the grade here was because it priced so messy. If you look at through all the internals, 2.49 bid to cover, that's the lightest bid to cover since March of this year. The other thing that jumped out at me was 17.3 on direct bidders, that's the lightest since June. Uh, yes, the, the numbers aren't so far away from the 10 auction average, but all metrics are away from 10 auction average. Tomorrow's five-year may go a bit better, but with Jackson Hole looming large at the end of the week, good luck trying to move this supply with any type of vigor whatsoever. John, back to you. Ouch, D minus. You call that a Charlie Brown auction? That's not, that's not a good grade. <laughs> Rick, thank you. Not at all. Uh, the chip sector in focus this week. NVIDIA reports earnings after the bell tomorrow. That stock has been under pressure with a recent cut to its outlook. This, as rival Intel, hits a five-year low as it prepares to open new fabs and uh, does some interesting moves with financing today. Uh, the semiconductor ETF SMH down 6% in the past week. Let's talk about it all with Vivek Arya, Senior Semiconductors Analyst at Bank of America Securities. Vivek, start off with... NVIDIA, which, relative to Intel anyway, uh, has been doing pretty well over the last few quarters, years anyway. Um, what do you expect from NVIDIA, and is now a time to buy into it? Uh, thank you, John. Yeah, I think the big picture with NVIDIA has not really changed. Um, you know, three big points. First, uh, very large markets. I think the adoption of AI is still in the first 20%. Uh, of its uh, curve, if you take the number of AI accelerated servers divided by the total number of servers, you will see the ratio is still less than 20%. And NVIDIA absolutely dominates uh, the market. Secondly, it's front of a big new multiple product cycles, in fact, on the new five nanometer technology, new accelerators, new CPUs, uh, new uh, DPUs. And number three, there is tremendous leverage in the model because every new product uh, they come out with is based on the same underlying architecture. So the same technology can be leveraged to not just AI, but metaverse, robotics, uh, healthcare, and so many different verticals. But as you mentioned, it is in front of, uh, you know, what has tended to be once every three to four year cyclical uh, correction in its uh, gaming segment. And not, not too surprising, uh, two out of the three large markets for gaming um, China was under a lot of lockdowns. Uh, we saw uh, all the turmoil in Europe. Those are two out of the three uh, gaming markets for NVIDIA. And the third is the use of uh, gaming cards by uh, the crypto miners, especially for Ethereum. Mm. As they move to a different protocol, I think that's also reducing the demand for gaming. So yes, I think they're in front of a tough quarter, tough guidance. It will probably be below consensus. But as we have seen a number of times over the last decade, those are the opportunities uh, that turn out to be attractive times to revisit uh, the big picture story, which in our mind still is, is extremely attractive. All right. Now let's talk Intel, which you don't like. Um, interesting announcement this morning. I spoke with Intel's CFO, co-investment with Brookfield to fund their fab build outs. This is going to cause less strain on their cash flow, uh, appears to potentially at least have some upside for their model. Does this make you feel better about the company or no? 
Yeah, John. So first, I think we have to acknowledge and applaud the fact that Intel uh, is, um, you know, very keen to invest more in the U.S. I think they absolutely need a lot more uh, semiconductor investments uh, uh, domestically in the U.S. Uh, I think it's it's a big risk to be very dependent on uh, Taiwan and and the East. And I think uh, we also applaud Intel for finding creative ways uh, to pay for that. But having said that, Intel faces three structural issues. The first structural issue is the technology is behind TSMC. Number two, Intel continues to lose market share to AMD in the server uh, side, and that dynamic is not going to change for the next two, three years. And number three, a big part of Intel, nearly half the company, is exposed to the PC market, and let's say the you know PC market is past its glory days. So none of those three structural issues are in any way addressed by new kinds of, of, of funding. I think, in my mind, they're actually more of a distraction because they are uh, uh, you know, hindering uh, the progress towards what should be a sustainable path to recovery for Intel. So no, I, I don't so, think it really changes the fundamental equation. Vivek, when do we find out as investors whether Pat Gelsinger's strategy is right? Even if it takes you know, two to three years to pan out from here, is two to three years when we find out, do we find out sooner? Because uh, if we know sooner than the actual results come in, then we would expect the stock to react sooner. Yeah, look, uh, you know, the problems uh, are, you know, didn't just start in the last two years. Uh, I think they have been uh, there uh, for the last, you know, five or 10, 10 years before uh, this management team um, right, took uh, charge. But even despite all the problems, Intel still has 80% market share in PCs and servers. And I think that is just unsustainable when you have a competitor such as AMD, who is very aggressive, very nimble, you know, operating at the top of the game. And then on the other side, you have somebody like NVIDIA, um, right, and Broadcom and Marvell, who are leading the markets into many new uh, directions. And I think for Intel to simultaneously compete with the best of the designers, which are the AMD, NVIDIA, Marvell, Broadcom, and the best of manufacturing, which is TSMC at the same time, I think it's just an unsustainably tough uh, problem. So I think it's, it's going to take a while for, for this to turn around. Okay. So uh, it sounds like your answer is you just don't think it's possible, um, but we'll see. We'll see uh, when we get that call one way or another as well. Vivek Arya, thank you. Pleasure. Now coming up, egregious differences. That's how Twitter's former security chief describes the company's defense against Hackers, and now he's filing a whistleblower complaint with regulators. This is sending the stock lower, fueling the fire in Elon Musk's lawsuit against the company, trying not to buy it. Those details are next. Plus, two key corners of consumer spending, housing and retail. We will get you ready for Toll Brothers, Urban Outfitters, and Nordstrom results on Earnings Exchange. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Today marks 15 years since the first hashtag was used on Twitter. And in that time, Twitter has faced plenty of scrutiny from lawmakers and regulators over privacy and cybersecurity policies. And now the company is under fire from its own former head of security who alleges reckless and negligent behavior from Twitter's leadership. Eamon Javers is following the story. Julia Borston has Twitter's response. And Chris Pearson is CEO of cybersecurity firm Black Cloak. He is looking at the fallout for Twitter and other tech firms in light of this complaint. Eamon, let's start with you. Well, John, what we know here is that the uh, whistleblower in question is Twitter's former head of security, Peter Zatko. He's a hacker who's known by the nickname Mudge. The contents of his written whistleblower complaint filed with federal agencies were confirmed to CNBC by Zlatko's legal team this morning. He says Twitter misled the government about security and spam, violated an FTC settlement, is running out-of-date software, and withheld key facts about the numbers of data breaches the company has faced. The key problem here seems to be that too many employees, maybe thousands had access that was not tracked well to the company's core software. And that raises the prospect of disgruntled or malicious employees using that access for their own benefit or even if they're on a foreign government's payroll. The complaint also says the company prioritized user growth over reducing spam and executives stood to make bonuses for themselves of as much as $10 million tied to increases in daily users, but not to decreases in spam. Now, Mudge was hired at Twitter by Jack Dorsey in late 2020, but he was fired by the company in January of this year. A spokesperson for the Senate Intelligence Committee tells CNBC that the committee has also received a copy of Mudge's complaint and is setting up a meeting with him as we speak. The spokesperson says, we take this matter very seriously. In a separate interview with CNN today, Zatko's legal team said he hasn't had any contact with Elon Musk, who is, as we all know, in a heated battle with Twitter over this takeover effort. Back over to you guys. All right. Eamon, thank you. Let's turn now to Julia Borston with the company's response. Julia. Well, John, these whistleblower accusations could certainly have implications for Twitter and Musk's legal battle over Musk's responsibility to buy the company and his refusal, citing allegations that Twitter underreported spam accounts. Now, Musk's attorney, Alex Spiro, saying, quote, we've already issued a subpoena for Mr. Zatko and we found his exit and that of other key employees curious in light of what we've been finding. But Twitter responding and discrediting these allegations, saying, quote, Mr. Zatko was fired from his senior executive role at Twitter in January 2022 for ineffective leadership and poor performance. Going on to say, what we've seen so far is a false narrative about Twitter and our privacy and data security practices that is riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies. Truest analyst Yusuf Squally telling us, quote, if we thought initially that Mr. Musk had very little chance of winning in court, 
these revelations improve his odds somewhat, but saying that, quote, our view of the situation remains unchanged and our rating on Twitter remains at hold. Now, this all comes on the heels of Elon Musk's legal team subpoenaing Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey. He did support Musk's bid, and now Musk is hoping that he'll provide some details about those all-important spam accounts. Now, all of this comes ahead of a Twitter vote on the deal that's in mid-September, followed by the trial that is set for a month later. Guys? All right, Julia, thank you. Let's dig now into the fallout. My next guest says Twitter could be looking at some pretty significant security issues if the whistleblower's complaints are true. Joining me now is Chris Pearson. He's CEO of Black Cloak and a former Department of Homeland Security Privacy Committee member. Chris, um, I remember <laughs> Mudge from uh, long ago when he was testifying about hacking back when the Internet was young. I mean... The web was young, I should say. The internet was, was middle-aged by then. Uh, he's a credible person in general. So does that mean trouble for Twitter here? Well, I think there are a few things here. I mean, you know, obviously these are serious allegations if they're true. I mean, if they're true, that actually might be a much larger risk as you take a look at the Twitter ecosystem, the types of users that they have on the ecosystem in terms of politicians, governments, heads of state. Uh, right. Not just the you and me, but people that are broader, that are making policy and announcing policy there. So, I mean, this really does need to be taken with a grain of salt. There is probably something that needs to be investigated here in terms of these allegations. But, you know, it's something where we need to definitely hear Twitter's story. I think the biggest things that I've heard that are going to be concerning is going to be user access, access to user data that might be kind of running rampant more at Twitter and not having sufficient controls over who as an employee can access what type of data. There are other things that are alleged and in some of that whistleblower uh, report information that's more around updating and patching and things that are update. These are a lot of these are normal things that every chief security, chief information security officer deals with on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Now, I'm not a lawyer or a security professional, but I spent a bunch of time talking <laughs> to, to experts over the years. It seems to me like a key issue here is um, Twitter is trying to say, hey, look, we have this agreement with Elon Musk. Nothing out of the ordinary, out of ordinary corporate practice has happened that would invalidate that agreement. But the key part of what Mudge is saying here is that there are certain security practices that Twitter had in place that were bad or a lack of security processes uh, and practices beyond the pale. Isn't that the key issue here? Is it possible that it could be. I mean, security hygiene, on... right, which, which we take for granted or, or talk about in general, uh, could end up costing billions of dollars here? Well, I think just like what we saw with the Yahoo transaction way back when, when it was acknowledged that there was a public data breach that had not been reported yet, it impacted the purchase price. So cybersecurity and privacy practices are always going to be part of any mergers and acquisition, any type of price deal that you have. It will most certainly be part of this price deal. I think what you have is a few things. Number one, you may have security allegations or allegations around poor security that are material, that are meaningful, that are impactful. Second, you have that 2011 consent decree that Twitter signed with the Federal Trade Commission. It was fined on for one violation of it already if the security is really as poor or has as many holes as is being alleged, it could uh, potentially cause another investigation or another uh, fine to be levied against uh, Twitter for that, affecting the price. And then that, that key issue, how many bots, how many spam accounts, how many fake accounts are actually there as part of Twitter, because that is actually what you're buying. You're buying the user base. 
And so if that is a problem that is out of control, if it has run amok, it could in fact impact the actual deal, the deal price, and whether this thing gets done. But if you're a board of directors, right, this is mm-hmm. another reminder, right, that if you're going to go through any transaction, somebody's trying to acquire you, you're trying to acquire somebody, the security practices involved, right, they, they could make or break that deal. It is absolutely. Look, at the end of the day, every single company has privacy and cybersecurity issues, but privacy and cybersecurity becomes an issue for your company in terms of its brand, its reputation, who it is, and can either inflate that price or deflate that price or potentially cause a deal to go awry and not be done. So it is something that all corporate executives own. It's something that the board owns. And it looks like, quite honestly, it's going to be a key point in the upcoming litigation uh, that happens. Chris Pearson, CEO of Black Cloak, thank you. And now, still ahead, builder sentiment falling for eight straight months. And now we've got the latest read on rent prices and new home sales. Will they tell a different story? And there's a currency conundrum in the market as the euro hits a two-decade low against the dollar. We're gonna give you some ways to take advantage of that. The exchange is back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. It is a mixed bag for the markets right now. The NASDAQ is actually outperforming, holding on to some slight gains, the lightest shade of green. S&P is about flat. The Dow is off its lows of about 200 points. And here are some of the movers this hour. Palo Alto Networks climbing up um, almost 12% after beating earnings estimates and giving strong quarterly and full-year guidance. The company's board also approved a three-for-one stock split that's effective next month. Macy's also higher by about 4.5% after reporting a strong quarter, but the retailer is cutting its full-year guidance as it expects shoppers to pull back on spending due to inflation, but still up more than 4%. And natural gas futures seeing some volatility after hitting 10 bucks for the first time since July 2008. Prices sinking right now as Freeport says it plans to open its LNG plan in November. Uh, prices are up nearly 20% in August overall. And now to Tyler Matheson with the CNBC News Update. Hi. John, thank you very much. And uh, this is your CNBC News Update. Up to the minute. New this hour, a federal jury in Michigan has convicted two men of plotting to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Barry Croft Jr. and Adam Fox had plotted to kidnap Whitmer in 2020 and were also convicted of planning to obtain a bomb to distract police as part of their kidnapping plan. In a statement, Whitmer said, quote, today's verdicts prove that violence and threats have no place in our politics and those who seek to divide us will be held accountable. Democrats in Florida will choose who they want to take on Governor Ron DeSantis in November. Vying to take on DeSantis right now is State Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, who's running against Congressman and former Republican Governor Charlie Crist. He converted to Democrat. Polls close tonight 
at 7 p.m. And a new report has found that a third of veterans say they've been arrested at least once, compared with fewer than one-fifth of all non-veterans. The Council on Criminal Justice launching a commission to determine why, and their preliminary report points to multiple risk factors, including combat-related trauma and post-traumatic stress. Tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, we will have more on primary day in Florida and some key races in New York state and city. The latest election results as they roll in tonight on the news. John, back to you. Ty, thank you. And coming up, well, you know it works for some baseball fields. If you build it, they will come. But does that phrase still work for home builders? We will get you ready for Toll Brothers Report after the bell, along with a pair of retailers with a look at what shoppers are spending on these days. Earnings Exchange is next. Welcome back. It is time for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three names set to report results. First up, Toll Brothers. That stock has struggled this year as the housing market continues to cool. Diana Olick joins me now with the story, and CNBC contributor Jeff Mills, CIO of Bryn Mawr Trust, has the trades today. Diana? Well, John, while the stock may not have been doing so well, Toll was actually faring slightly better in earnings than its peers simply because it's at that luxury price point and its buyers weren't necessarily as dependent on mortgage rates and the rate moves that we've seen. But that may all be about to change because we've seen in the home sales categories that top price tiers are actually falling now just as the lower price tiers were. And we got the new home sales out report out this morning showing a steep drop in July. And especially we'll be looking at Toll Brothers for their inventory numbers. Inventories are now up near an 11-month supply overall for the builders. A four to six-month supply is considered healthy. We're also going to be looking at prices for Toll Brothers. Again, that high price point, over $800,000. Will it fall a little bit? We did see some price movement a little bit for overall home builders up only 8% year over year in July, whereas prices had been up over 20% in previous months year over year. And we're also going to closely be watching cancellation rates on Toll Brothers because that really is the big picture for the builders now. We've seen cancellation rates overall double just since May. And that, of course, is keeping the builders worried that, again, they're going to have just too much supply in their backlogs. John. All right, Diana. Thanks. Uh, Jeff, Higher cancellation rates, uh, higher interest rates, uh, higher inventories, anything to like here? Yeah, so John, all completely relevant things to point out. And I'm not particularly bullish on housing. I'm not particularly bullish on the economy for that matter. And we mentioned it, right? Existing home sales down, new home sales today, uh, another miss, mortgage applications down. But, and I do think there is a but here, and it doesn't mean the toll is going to go up when the market goes down, but I do think you actually have sort of a long-term value play here. First of all, stock's really never been cheaper at four times forward earnings. I think the cost of materials probably peaked. Long-term interest rates probably peaked. I think those things are generally good for the builders. And this might surprise some people, but stocks like Toll, Home Depot, They've historically outperformed during recessions, and that includes 2008. Usually you see a lot of that underperformance leading into the recession. So people saying, boy, look at all this bad news. We're heading into a recession. Maybe we've already seen most of the underperformance already. So I think that's something worth considering. And then just lastly, I think the chart is somewhat supportive. You have that $41 level. Uh, that's been key support. It held in June. So an interesting stock here. And then certainly long term, uh, plenty of structural supports for the housing market. 
Okay, well, let's see what you think about Nordstrom. That stock is up nearly 18% since its last earnings report in May when it raised its revenue growth target and the lower end of EPS guidance. Courtney Reagan has the story. Court? Hi there, John. Yeah, so Nordstrom is going to be an interesting run, right, because it sits in the department store space, which has been under pressure. We heard from Macy's today, which was better than feared. Kohl's wasn't so great. But then Nordstrom, we know, plays to... Uh, shopper with an income that's slightly higher. And that has been a shopper that's been more insulated. We also know it had its big anniversary sale during the quarter. That is likely going to give it a nice little bump. And of course, when you're looking at the financial details of that, you have to be careful with the timing for the year-over-year comparison. But still, it should have driven some traffic and interest into Nordstrom. And that's something that some of the analysts are pointing to as a positive there, along with that higher income consumer still holding up fairly well. The company has done what they can to make sure that they're not overstored or oversquare footaged, if that's a word, um, kind of looking at some of these smaller format locations, even those service centers. And so I expect them to talk a lot about how all of that is continuing to work together. But really, I think at the end of the day, it's just is a consumer that is facing pressure from all directions still interested in paying for very discretionary goods, which is exactly where Nordstrom plays. Okay, Court, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Okay, it's efficient. It's luxury, but Macy's just cut guidance. Is that priced into Nordstrom? Um, Will it do well? Yeah, Macy's did cut guidance, but interesting the way it's trading today, right? Uh, Up about 4%. It was up 6% earlier. So I think a lot of investors are going to be focusing on the efficiency, the inventories, the margins. I I think that's going to be the real consideration here. And my comments relative to Nordstrom will sound kind of similar to what I said about toll in that, yeah, I have concerns about the consumer. Delinquency rates are going up, especially in the subprime area, maybe less relevant for Nordstrom, but you know, banks tightening lending standards, things of that nature. Uh, but there's a but here as well. And I think this is a retail stock that you can own. Again, it's not going to go up when the rest of retail is getting hammered, but on a relative value basis, I think this is interesting. I think the turnaround story is real, what they're doing with supply chain productivity, what they're doing in digital, you know, kind of those more convenient local store locations that we just talked about some really interesting partnerships uh, just to make merchandising a little bit more relevant. All birds, as an example, a 3% dividend. So a little bit of a margin of safety there. Nice buybacks announced and they've outperformed a bunch this year. But if you look at the valuation, uh, historically cheap still. So again, an interesting stock, sort of a challenging industry, but I think it's something you can take a look at. All right. Well, we got to go back to Courtney on Urban Outfitters. It is down 23% this year, but has seen a nice run up in the past three months. The company reports a 31% build in inventory in its last quarter, an an issue that uh, many uh, retailers have been dealing with over the past several weeks and months. Court, uh, is Urban Outfitters positioned as well as Nordstrom? I mean, it's not luxury exactly, but it's maybe hipper than Kohl's? Uh, perhaps. It certainly has these three different brands, right? So it's got the namesake brand, the Urban Outfitters, which does tend to trend a little bit younger, but then Anthropology and Free People may be a little bit um, older when you're talking age of shopper. And I think that that is potentially going to help because the Urban Outfitters banner is not expected to perform particularly well when you're looking at sales year over year this time around. But as you point out, inventories really were a big issue at the end of the first quarter, which weren't as much of an issue with other retailers at the end of the first quarter, but here in the second quarter. So I think a lot of the question is, is what happened to it? Were they able to sell it? And if they were, 
at what level did they have to really discount those goods in order to sell them? So that's a question, as well as the cost to run the business. It is a question for everyone, but Urban Outfitters particularly had some trouble with freight and fuel costs in the last quarter. And so we're going to want to know if any of that has been better managed as some of those prices, the, the pricing pressures that the companies are facing to run the businesses have lessened. All right. Jeff, do you like the urban outfitters as much as the suburban outfitters mm -hmm. at Nordstrom? <laughs> I don't think I do. I don't think I like it as much. And even with the recent rally, you know, in retail, it's sort of been worse to first over the past couple of months. A lot of the stuff that got really beat up uh, has rallied. I just don't know if that's based on fundamentals. I think the good thing with Urban is you have some margin of safety relative to the valuation if you compare it to, say, a Gap, for example, that's trading at a premium multiple. And Urban has done a pretty decent job in transitioning to digital. I think over 50% of their sales are digital now. Courtney mentioned that product diversification. It's not just clothes, you know, anthropology, free people, et cetera. Uh, but they've struggled. They've struggled kind of cross-selling between those different brands. And like we mentioned, it's going to be about inventory management. It's going to be about cost management. And they've struggled there. That's been the primary driver of retail. That's what's driving some of the trading today. If you look at Macy's, if you look at Dick's, the way those stocks are trading relative to one another. Uh, and Urban usually trades kind of right on top of Nordstrom's. But right now, it's at a 2P turn premium. So uh, this is one I think you can set aside for now. All right, whether it's housing or clothes, inventory is a big issue. Court, Jeff, thank you. Now coming up, the dollar continuing to gain strength, hitting a two-decade high against the euro earlier today. That is putting pressure on companies that do business overseas, including this one. It's down 15% today. The name is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Well, it's back to school time, right? So let's have some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Zoom on pace for their worst day in a year after cutting full year guidance for profit and sales. CFO Kelly Stuckelberg telling Squawk Box Zoom is seeing a shift in revenue sources, but that's not helping completely offset some international headwinds. And that online business we're really excited about the progress we're seeing in the enterprise segment of our business, which grew 27% year over year. We did talk about, though, impact from FX and macroeconomic environment. It's mainly focused on our online segment of the business. This is part of our business that grew dramatically over the last two and a half years. And it's now dropped down to under 50% of our revenue. But it is really being challenged, as I said, by what's going on in Europe. That business you just heard her talking about helped push shares to an all-time high of nearly 600 bucks a share in late 2020, but stock is down 85% since then and on track for its fifth straight quarter of declines. Now, still ahead, my next guest says there's a freeze coming to the housing market, but there's one area that he calls close to recession-proof. That's next. Welcome back. There are more signs of cracks showing in the housing market with new home sales down sharply in July. This as the 30-year fixed rises again. And at the same time, we're seeing prices starting to ease in some areas of the rental market. Diana Olick has reporting on all of this, and she's back with me now with the latest. Diana? Well, John, after a tremendous run in 2021, rent growth for apartments looks to have peaked. Nationally, rents rose just 0.8% between June and July of this year, 
one-third the growth seen at the same time a year ago, and that's all according to RealPage. Apartment REITs had been the darlings of the pandemic because while some people fled the big city markets, an influx in the Sun Belt pushed rents. Now, REITs are also a low interest rate play because they offer higher dividends. Now, rents are easing and interest rates are rising, and some of these apartment REITs are now better positioned than some of the others. I spoke with Alexander Goldfarb, an analyst with Piper Sandler, who is bullish on Sunbelt names like Camden and Mid-America. Rents there didn't push as high last year, but demand is still solid. He is less so on the big coastal market REITs like Equity Residential, Avalon Bay, and UDR. Rents skyrocketed on the coast and are simply unsustainable. While rent growth may be easing, it is unlikely to drop because the home sales market is weakening so quickly due to rising mortgage rates. Now, we've seen the average on the 30-year fix pop up again in just the past few days, now edging towards 6% again, according to Mortgage News Daily. And as you mentioned, John, new home sales for July were out this morning with a massive drop down nearly 13% for the month and nearly 30% year over year. This as the supply of newly built homes for sale is soaring. John. All right, Diana, thank you. Now my next guest has his hands in various segments of the real estate market, including construction and property management. He says a freeze is ahead for housing. He also says there's one area that's going to hold up better than others. That's the multifamily market. For more, let's bring in Patrick Carroll. He is founder and CEO of Carroll, a real estate investment firm with more than $8 billion in assets. Patrick, why multifamily um, because I wonder, have investors gotten so involved in multifamily that they could f pull back and affect the market? Yeah, I mean, look, multifamily is <clears throat> an amazingly real resilient asset class. I mean, when the economy is expanding, you know, people move out of their parents' home, people relocate and they rent apartments. Um, when the economy is slowing down and we're going into a recession, you know, people pull back the, the, you know, the amount of money they're spending. So they look for a cheaper alternative and tend to rent apartments. Um, so historically, it's been a great asset class. Um, there's definitely a freeze going on in the market right now. I mean, it, this was a market that had record transactions, the multifamily market for the past hmm. few years. And right now, it's all about frozen. Um, and it's well, really, a, there's a, yeah, go ahead. I understand the renter demand for multifamily, but what about the, the amount that uh, investors are going to be willing to pay to own that multifamily unit, right? I mean, as interest rates rise, as perhaps the available capital shrinks a bit, is that going to affect the market? Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing price declines uh, in, in asset sales. I mean, 10 to 15 percent uh, a minimum. Uh, we closed two properties last uh, last week, and there was at least a 10 to 15 percent uh, discount applied. And so, yeah, right now it's very hard for investors and lenders to project where interest rates are going and where cap rates are going. Uh, and cap rates drive the value. So if you can't estimate the cap rate, it's very hard to estimate the value you should be paying. So as an investor, what do you do in this environment then? I mean, I guess it's helpful to you if you got a bunch of dry powder cash to buy properties, uh, though, hey, multifamily can be pretty expensive. Do you put that to work in certain segments of the multifamily market when you see prices coming down like that? Well, we do. Um, we just closed on our last fund. Uh, it's a multifamily investment fund. So we're actively deploying capital. We look at you know, any pullback in pricing is is a good thing. We're, you know, you know, long-term investors for the most part, and we're we're long-term believers in the Sun Belt. We've been buying properties in uh, the Sun Belt since 2011. We saw this trend coming. We're still, you know, extremely bullish on these markets. 
um, and believe they've got a long room, a uh, long way to run. So yeah, any pullback in pricing, um, we're an established company. We, we still can get debt. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the newer players can't, but uh, we view this as an opportunity to grow. So if we do end up going into a recession of some significance and there's a loosening uh, in the labor market, if people start getting laid off, I imagine that affects the housing market eventually as well, right? Because uh, if people can't afford to pay as much rent, if there are more vacancies, uh, rents are going to have to come down. But that's several months off at least. I hope so. I mean, look, it, it seems like everything's softening. So, you know, to, to think there will be some type of softening in rents uh, is, is, pretty, uh, is, is a pretty safe bet. Now, I don't think you'll see a massive correction just because of supply and demand. I mean, you have more people moving to the Sun Belt than we do have, you know, affordable housing available. So it's really kept occupancies, you know, at record highs. It's kept rents going up. And, you know, it, going into a recession, you may see a little mitigation of that. But I still I still think you'll see rent growth for the next three to five years in the market. OK, three to five years. We will see. Patrick Carroll, thank you. Thank you. And still ahead, gold ETFs seeing consistent outflows as the commodity remains under pressure. Has gold lost its shine as a hedge? We will talk about that and the impact on gold-related stocks next. Welcome back. Gold is trying to snap a six-day losing streak, trading slightly higher at 1760 right now. This as the dollar continues to get stronger, and that's having an impact on a number of companies, including Zoom, which called it a headwind in its latest earnings. Uh, for more on the commodity and currency fallout, let's bring in Seema Modi. Seema? John, the price of gold jumped at the onset of Russia's invasion in Ukraine in early spring to $2,000. But as higher rates started to dominate the narrative, prices fell and then spiking slightly in early August on the prospect of tensions between Taiwan and China following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. But strategists say the real catalyst behind the fall in gold is the rebound in the U.S. dollar and rising yields, all leading to about 10 consecutive weeks of ETF outflows, a big number there, and considerable losses for gold miners. Bernstein analyst Bob Brackett says the debate around these stocks going forward will focus more solely on the price of gold and where it heads from here. He's also raises concerns about Newmont Mining, where the company's language around future dividends, he says, was not so positive. He's downgrading both Newmont Mining and Barrett Gold uh, last week. Bank of America less bearish, though. Strategists there say add Jackson Hole this this week, Fed speakers will embrace a more dovish tone, and that could actually support prices from here on out. They say the key support level for the yellow metal is 1724 to 1745. You can see gold right now trading at 1760. John? Okay, so when there is demand, where is it coming from? Who's buying gold? So as we've seen over the past couple of years, it's the emerging market countries like China, Russia, India, even Turkey. Those are the countries and their central banks that remain big buyers of gold. But you got to wonder if this dollar continues to strengthen uh, how what type of pressure that puts on those countries that continue to buy the yellow metal. John, uh, weren't they supposed to be buying Bitcoin? I thought they would be buying. No. I think there's always been this level of interest from a lot of these countries to find other places to put to allocate their capital, whether it's gold or another type of alternative currency. There is that type of appetite and interest for sure. All right. Seema Modi, thank you. And that will do it for the exchange power lunch.
starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.